Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the people behind the poetry. So if you want to know what happened, how it happened, and who was involved, well, you are in the right place. A big thank you to our interview last week to Panama Soweto for being so generous, so gracious with this time. The actual interview for Panama Soweto ran almost two and a half hours, so I had to cut out quite a bit from that interview. What you heard was just uh, the juicy parts of that interview. So a huge thank you once again to Panama Soweto. This week, we have got another excellent interview on deck for you. This week, we are going to interview Mary McDonough. Mary is one of only three people to have been a competing member of all three Denver teams. That's Minor Disturbance, Mercury Cafe, and Slam Nuba. The only other two people to do that are Franklin Cruz and Rebecca Preston. Mary also represented Slam Nuba on the final stage of the 2014 National Poetry Slam in Oakland, where the team finished fourth overall, and they are now the host city chair for the National Poetry Slam 2017 coming to Denver. So, without any further ado... Here is your interview with Mary McDonough. All right, our guest this week is the host city chair for the National Poetry Slam Denver 2017, Mary McDonough. How are you doing, Mary? I'm really good, Eddie. I'm so glad that we could have you here. Yeah, for sure. So, i uh, got some questions for you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start at the beginning. I would love for you to tell our listeners how you got involved in poetry, how you got involved in Poetry Slam, what was the beginning of all that journey? When I was but a wisp, wisp of a poet. (laughs) Um, So I first remember walking into the Merc um, and, you know, it's like this totally charged, enchanted place. Uh, Like it just, it looks like a different universe so it looks like a, a heart when you walk inside of it um and i think i was 16 or 17 um and just being totally like blown away by what was going on um in like good and bad ways there was some like i maybe didn't have like the the vocabulary for it yet but it was like oh that poem was like maybe inappropriate um but still at the same time it was just like the the energy and the um the overall like attitude of like the stage and the the people engaged in the space was really really profound to me um and then I so I was really into Andrea Gibson shout out obviously Mm -hmm. I think that Andrea is definitely the um the gateway drug for a lot of young <laughs> queer uh, poets. We're not queer. <laughs> yeah. Like, Andrea's a hookup. Yeah, sure. for sure. Um, so that's what. I, yeah, like to, yeah, they were my gateway. Um, 
and so I, I was like following them a lot and uh i got involved in vox rising which was the youth um branch of the like feminist theater troupe that andrew was a part of vox feminista um and there i met like other poets i met rebecca preston um and i met a few teachers as well and mentors that were kind of like so this is how like this is how performance works this is how you have like a feminist ethic inside of your work um and this is how you know start kind of like sowing the seeds of like what what it means to be like a critical artist um and so the first time i ever went on stage at the Merck was for the um minor disturbance grand slam 2008 yeah um when rebecca was slamming so then i uh got up during the jam before the slam because i, I didn't know how it worked <laughs> Um, and it was just like, I guess I'm going to do this first poem that I ever wrote about this person. Um, and it was like cute and awkward and, and all of the things. Um, and I kind of left the experience being like, yeah, this is something that I, this is something that I could envision myself doing for sure. And, um, history footnote there, Rebecca ended up making that team. That's in right. 2008. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and so then, you know, the year went by and I somehow managed to get on to Minor Disturbance. Somehow. Um, yes. I think you did with, it with awesome writing. With that's, my, uh, that's how I think it happened. Yes, with uh, really, really stellar um, mentors on hand. Eddie Eifler, Ken Arkind, and Jen Rinaldi was the coaching squad that year. Um, and, and Minor Disturbance was, again, like this really huge watermark um in my i think like creative career for sure because it's the first time i'd ever had like a community of writers um that i could depend on that you know were were really really interested in in art and and creating important work and yeah bnv is also a hell of a thing <laughs> um the brave new voices festival is very very palpable and vibrant and it was completely different than anything i'd ever experienced and it was overwhelming and difficult <laughs> and exhausting and beautiful um and b and v has actually changed a lot even since 09 like the sure culture of absolutely has changed a lot. so tell me about your experiences at b and v in that first year the 2009 year when you were on the team um so I was one of two poets that had never been on a team before, and I was also the oldest person on the team. Um, it was the only year that I could have been on Minor Disturbance because I was 19 that year. Um, and yeah, the other the other newbie was uh, Elijah Lynch, and he, you know, is also in the <laughs> in the community too, um, or had been like I think more of a presence in the Merc. Um, so I think that. The biggest message that I got from that experience was like also how to like create like culture and welcoming within the um, within a like team space um, because I always felt like like 
the people on the team already had like this entire like history and like things to go off of for like and the way that they like interacted with each other and i always kind of felt like a little bit of an outsider um but then in the competition itself like we were we were like so much ourselves and we're like so denver and it was like the first time that i ever like felt like pride <laughs> for being from a place um or had ever like been thoughtful about about a place um and like representing denver so let's go over the team members that year. you yeah said you eli sarah sarah cap gould shelby handler Liz, Liz Cheever, Cheever and Libby Howard. Yeah, Mud Howard. Yeah, Mud Howard. That's right. And you're right. the The other four names had been long time uh, alumna of mm-hmm. minor service, and you and Eli had to come into this really established like group of things mm-hmm. and try to figure out your way into it. Yeah, and it's really. I mean, it's amazing how fast that happens on a team um, because it really only takes like it's like people being on a team for like two years consecutively to have like a real like deep cemented squad situation happening mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you, in uh, the memorable poem <laughs> that year is you and eli's duet yes talk about that fucking yeah um we had this poem that was called girls um and it was about how you kind of like crush on the poet at the mic but really what you're crushing on is the poetry and the mic um and it was also like very inappropriate and ridiculous but it was also um i think the the moment specifically when we threw it so we were in this bout which was just Just amazing (laughs) it was i think it was hawaii philly philly i remember um maybe new york and us yeah. Um, so like, like bout. three teams that had like been on like HBO the next, the year before or something yeah. and us like, you know, we're, you know, at this point we're just, you know, Denver, like who knows? Um, and the entire bout was just wall to wall agony <laughs> and trauma and it was beautiful it was and hard. And like, I just remember like sitting there and being like, this is too much. Like, I, I don't even know what's going to happen right now. Um, and there was, you know, the coaches were all like, being like, what are we going to (laughs) do? Like, is it, is it appropriate to throw a funny, um, a poem that's like really, really has a lot of levity and rhythm and rhyme and, and joy in the room that is like, so that is just like subterranean in its heaviness. Um, and you know, but, but then we did. And it was so, like, I like I, I really, like, I don't have any memory of doing the poem. Um, I remember sitting back down and hearing the scores and being like, what? <laughs> and so we got a 30 um, because it was just, just this, like, again, a really, really beautiful, like, moment in coaching and, like, learning of being, like, sometimes a room just needs a breath. It just, like, poetry doesn't always have to be um you know crucifixion (laughs) it doesn't always have to be um like the the hardest thing that's ever happened to you like or sometimes or you know ideally you're doing two things at once like you're allowing 
the audience to laugh and then within that laughter is also reveals you know it's its own amount of like complexity yeah i think that's just a prime example of the room needed to laugh at that time because you're absolutely right it was just heavy after heavy after heavy just urgent serious trauma just one after the next mm-hmm. and, and that's exactly what we were talking about mm-hmm. uh, it was like is it appropriate yeah. to change the room at this Ken moment wanted to throw a different poem and i was like no this room needs to laugh right now like i thought it was the other way around i thought i thought jen was like talking to ken and be like we shouldn't do this but ken made that oh eddie yes yeah, right oh here. making the calls making the call Getting the 30s. <laughs> and I'll tell you the moment you guys had the room is there was a specific line in the poem where Eli's um, talking about a, a poem that he wrote for this fictitious girl <laughs> and he hands it to her and she says that she's a lesbian. <laughs> yeah. And then you say, I just think she thought your poem sucked. <laughs> and Eli gives you this look like, what'd you just say to me? And, like, and the room just busted Died. at that point. Like, yeah. That's the moment you yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't question what you do to a microphone, but I don't want to go home with you. I want your words to take me home with them. I don't love you like I love your pen. And it is, it's, it's a hilarious poem. Um, and it's, it's also, like, ridiculous. And, <laughs> and, and definitely, you know, to, if nothing else, absolutely a snapshot of where we were as artists at that moment. Yes, it was. Um. <laughs> so what was the... Well, before we get into the fallout of, of that year, there's another memorable story that I think came mm-hmm. from that summer <laughs> when we took a trip to Albuquerque. I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> Talk about that, Albuquerque. So, um, also, like, retrospect and retrospect um, is that, um, so we were going to, was it Albuquerque or was it Taos? It was Albuquerque, it was Albuquerque because we stayed in that hostel. Mm-hmm. Um so we were in Albuquerque for the Southwest Shootout. Yeah, uh, I think it was a Southwest Shootout. Yes. Yeah, so it was like you know, a youth team competing with adults to you know just like for that, and then it was also you know all these youth poets that like hadn't like I hadn't ever like gone a trip like this before, um, or been in you know a real bout competition before. <clears throat> so I uh, or. I might just throw Shelby under the bus and be like, I'm pretty sure it was Shelby that brought. I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations brought, brought some, brought some booze yeah. in a Nalgene bottle, um, and uh, we decided that we we're gonna have like a little MD party um, in our hostel room. <laughs> and you were the only coach. I was the only one not competing or coaching. That's right. On another team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were like you were kind of our yeah, dude. I was like um, the one. You were the guy. adult in the room. Yes. So God bless. <laughs> and <laughs> and the whole like there was like a couple other like fires that you had to put out over the course of the evening, um, and I just like we had been kind of like you know dicking around and drinking I think and. Uh, you know, it's just like, why, why, why you have solo cups though? Like that is just like, it's just a dead giveaway. It's such a, it's such an amateur move. So we had solo cups with like Pepsi and like vodka in them. And, and you were just like, you know, you handled it with so much damn grace that I can't even express, especially having to then 
in subsequent seasons be the adult in the room <laughs> and that was <laughs> I like I always think about that of just being like I don't I would not I don't think I could have handled that the way that Eddie handled that of just being like so this is not happening and that's all I have to say about it <laughs> and really the the moral of that story is that minor disturbance the the entity the the organization is bigger than any one poet it's bigger than any one team mm-hmm. and stuff like that will jeopardize minor disturbance right you know like if, if anyone's parents yeah. had found out that happened we might not have had any other teams right any that. other kind of fool- foolishness like that yeah. um yeah definitely and uh, yeah, that, that hit home, and it's a lesson that, that continues. <laughs> um, because, you know, you're, um, you're working with uh, poets and, and trying, you know, the, the ideal position for a coach is to, like, just get out of the way and make enough space for people to be creative within. Um, but that's also, you know, like, having the boundary within that space of being, like, also... This is a this is a legal issue. <laughs> this is a this is a liability issue um, that we cannot like take on <laughs> as as the as the adults in the room. So so, so kudos to you. Eh, I, I handled it how I thought I needed to. <laughs> yeah. So we're back at uh, Brave New Voices. Mm-hmm. We we get through this that monster of about. Um, mm-hmm. In two thousand nine. Uh, what was what was the the remainder of that experience in 2009. So we took, we got first in our first bout, then we took second in that bear of about, um, I think to Hawaii because we needed a 30 to, to even just get second. Um, and so then we went, moved on to semis. Um, and, um, it was the first time my servants had made semis. Uh, so that was like, that was all like buzzing in the room and stuff. And I remember like, just like, you know, it's like Brave New Voices is just like high school musical only with people of color. Um, and poems instead of songs. songs. (laughs) But also people will break out into songs, like just randomly all the time. So I remember like, we were like singing on the bus and like doing all this weird shit. Um, and the other thing that was really moving for me um was that all of the people that had been on the team last the last season in 2008 like had made all of these like really beautiful relationships and friendships with all of these people um like specifically the Providence team who were so so like gracious and wonderful and just like down for us and it was like wild because I'd never like had fans before and I didn't like really like understand like what that meant. <laughs> this is like I was like I thought that I was only fans of other people. Like it's weird to have people be fans of Denver just because I'm from Denver. Um but super awesome. <laughs> and so then um so Providence showed up with like, you know, they had like they'd like written three oh three on their arms and stuff and just like we're so into it. Um, and so the bout starts and it's again, like very, very real and very, very intense. Um, and, um, Brave New Voices has like this repeat rule, which is like, you're only allowed to repeat two. I think we had burned our repeats or burned it within the bout. We we use one repeat up to that point. Okay. One more left. Yeah. Um, and so we end up. 
tying with the team from Jacksonville. Um, and we're all just like sweating <laughs> and like the coaches are all like huddled and we're all just like, it's just like really, really wild ass energy. Um, and we decide, so we lose the coin toss. Um, so we're going first in this tiebreaker and, um, they do Shelby, Sarah, Mud, and Liz do a, do a group piece called Smalls. It's really, really beautiful. And it's just like, again, like the entire room is just so, so on fire and so engaged and so ready. And I just like, also that was another experience that was new is to be like down for your squad. <laughs> and just like, so like, just like a moment in, that happens in slams when you just can like feel yourself holding the poets as you're in the audience. Um, so that like they can be lifted up and do what they need to do and it's just like so so beautiful and i feel like if it had been like a scored poem it would have gotten another 30 or something um but then uh uh the team from jacksonville goes second and i don't remember their poem it was a, it was an indie it, well it wasn't it was, it was, it was a duet it was a it duet was, but it incorporated singing Right. Like it was basically an indie with someone singing in addition to the poem. Uh huh. Yeah. It was uh, and the refrain was sometimes I feel like a motherless child. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I vaguely remember that yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and it's also a very very beautiful poem. Um, and you know it was just like this, it was like blind judging. Five judges choose A or B, um, and and they chose Jacksonville in a three two. A split and we were just all so hurt and it was just this whole situation um and I know that you know the other folks on the team who had been on the team in 2008 and 2008 was again another like very charged year and uh Denver had like just 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 missed um semifinals in like the most crappy way on some bullshit on some on a, so especially I think like Shelby um Shelby specifically was was feeling her. mad yeah. and mad mad a lot. Um and there was this was another like wild thing too. I remember I was in the hallway. So this was at like or um like this was at the public radio station on the Navy Pier. Yes. On, on Navy Pier yeah. in in Chicago. Like it was a cool venue. Yes, like it was, it was. beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I remember like, I don't know, I was in the hallway or something and Liz came up to me like, just like weeping, um, and just being like, I'm so sorry. Like I wanted, I wanted to like 
win that for you so badly because I hadn't gone up in that in that bout um and I just like was like I there's literally nothing else you could have done <laughs> like if you you know if that poem didn't move us on to final stage like there's there's literally nothing else we could have done and everybody like did the did what they they did as Denver um and it was you know a whole a whole different thing but we did get invited to do um final stage um as as a like um as sorbet poets um with that poem so that was the first year i think that they were doing that um you know teams that don't make it into finals get features yes yeah so that's that was a that was a cool shift um and it was it was beautiful to like be backstage at the chicago theater um and and in this place to it was just it was just wild (laughs) and we took a picture under the sign that was like through these doors past the best artists in america uh it was so cool we have our little hand sign 303 303. um which albuquerque also thinks is 505 which is like whatever (laughs) (laughs) so that was your first year on any team that was 2009 Mm -hmm. yeah um when was your next year on the team was it 20 the next year i was assistant coaching i was helping coach with ayande russell and ken arkind um 2010 that was scores yeah right so so the big kerfuffle of that year um, among other things, was HBO was going to be back um, to to, man, to see. We have a bad taste. On we we, we had we had some oh, some man. mad beef with yes, HBO and Brave New Voices for like selling our shit to HBO without our permission and all of this stuff and like a lot of really you know like it's so interesting now because I feel like Brave New Voices is finally starting to listen five years later and i keep like wanting to be like raise my hand and be like you know that this shit was shit that denver was saying five years ago (laughs) seven years ago (laughs) like get your shit together um and so yeah because it's like now brave new voices has shifted their entire you know ethic and aesthetic into being like you know we're gonna like listen to the poets we're gonna um you know stop commodifying people's trauma um we're going to have real um real accountability in the way that we like bracket our um slams so um so that's 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 super interesting um (laughs) however the team had gotten a hold of information that brave new voices coaches the judges to not give anything less than an eight um, so in Poetry Slam, that, like, <clears throat> is not a, that's not a real ass scale. Like, there's no point in having a competition. Um, and it's, you know, the point that they were coming from was just being like, you know, how dare you assume that we are so fragile or that we care so little about our art that we could be destroyed by, like, a seven, um, and I also remember one of the big arguing points in that poem was like, we've gotten sixes to get here, you know, like <laughs> in our home venues, we've gotten bad scores before. Right. Like, what makes you think that people give us fives? Right. Like what makes you think that we can't handle less than that if we come here? Right. We stand here now in front of five judges who have given us the courtesy 
give that 6.2? Would have sent us home feeling like we had no further to go. Like we had accomplished all we could. Like that scared shitless smile was the best we could be. Judges, give this poem a 7. And it's this whole thing about like um, condescension, like the condescension of um, the adults in who like or who have like the power at brave new voices thinking that this is the only thing that like these you know cute youth teams can handle um and stuff so the poem so it's uh eli mud howard and liz cheever they get on stage they pick up their microphones and they walk to the judges and Damn so they, they so they're right in front of them um, put their mics down. They do this poem. And so this 2010 was in Hollywood, um, in LA. Um, and so there was, you know, like there was a, there was like a grip of celebrities like Rosario Dawson and common hosted this final stage. Like it was crazy. And like Penn, Penn yeah, Penn Gillette was one of the judges, of the judges. <laughs> it, and, and Talib Kweli. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it. It was wild. They went all out. It was so weird. I, I mean, I mean, you know, when you got that HBO money, shh. <laughs> <Spend> it, <right? laughs> so, so it was. That was a whole like this like weird glitz and situation of just being like, you know, it's it's again like commodification and all this. It's it's complicated. It was complicated. So we're out here and they, you know, they do their poem and it's like. If you have any, like, if you respect us as poets, you will give this poem a seven. Um, and it was wild because that was the third poem, um, I think, of the was it third or fourth. Maybe that was our last poem. I hope it was the last poem. Um, because they, uh, we had, we were kind of in the running, um, scores wise, at halftime. We were in a place where we might have been able to scrape out a win um, and, and take final stage. Um, but you thought that that was a more important point to prove. And so I remember like having this conversation with Ken um, backstage of, and Ken was just like, you know, they could, they could win. And like, is it more important for us as coaches to assure that they have that win? especially like the youth on the team, like for their careers going on as poets, um, you know, because there's poets that, you know, were away from their kids. Like Hoser had a baby who would come to practices <laughs> um, and, you know, he had to take time away from his family to attend this festival. Um, and was it right for us as coaches to call this poem that we knew would lose us the competition? <clears throat> And it's like, we, as the, like, cause the, the team was really, really dedicated to, to this idea, um, and need. So they were like, no, we should do it. And Ken and I were just like, it's the most important thing as coaches is to listen to your team. So that's, that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> and they go up and the poem, like, it's amazing. Like, I'm, it's again, like. I've never seen an audience react like this. And B&B audiences are notoriously loud and fucking yes. on and ready and so, so down for like whatever is happening. 
Um, and I've never seen an audience this down for this message. Um, like at the end, they chanted seven for like four minutes, like longer than the duration of the poem, because it's actually a short poem. And they just chanted and chanted and chanted seven, 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 seven. And it was like, we were like, I was like, I started crying and just being like, this is fucking insane because it's, you know, you can win a like a national competition or you can become legendary in a national competition. Or you can change the rules. Right? You can like, change the rules yeah. of the competition. You can yeah. insist that you um, leverage that space to make organizers of the festival fucking listen to you. Um, because that's because they'd already shown that like that stage is the only stage that they respect. That's why they sold that stage. Um, and and yeah, they, they gave us, you know, I think there was like four sevens and a ten. Right, something like that. <laughs> or maybe two tens. <laughs> um, and I just, like, it was so good. And that really is a watershed moment, not just in Denver poetry <clears throat> history, but in, like, Brave New Voices history. Like, yeah. That, that is still something better that respect. people talked about to this day. Yeah, like, like, we would be walking around at the at the end of the competition and people would be sh- would shout like would start chanting seven as denver walked past the next year yeah <laughs> so where do you go from there 2010. <laughs> um 2011 was in chicago must have been no the bay uh things get so blurry um Nope, it was in it was in the bay. I remember. So again, this is just, you know, we're just like this ragtag group. <laughs> um was that the year you guys did Dead Sons? That was the year we did Dead Sons, so that's why I remember. Richard was definitely on So that. it was definitely Richard, um, definitely Hoser. Frank? Was he the other dead son? Because we also did PTSD, this other poem. Um and Isabel. Uh, I'm such a terrible coach. I'm a terrible person. Um, but it's... So at this point, we've been on final stage with HBO. Yes. Um, and you guys kind of had an aura with you, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Yeah. It was like, you know what, there's Denver. Like, right? Denver is, like, ready. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Denver's damn turn. And I, think, <laughs> and I think, just, like, looking back through the way history plays itself out, I think... Those 08, 09 teams, like they had to go through the hardships they went through. Right. To, the the mucky muck. Oh man, the, the absolute fucking bullshit. <laughs> to to re- elevate Denver as a city, as an organization, to that status. Absolutely. That. Like we had to. Th- those were us paying the dues, you mm-hmm. know. And then once those dues were paid, everyone was like, "Oh shit." It was real. There's Denver. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also like, it goes to the whole point of of Denver as like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I don't know how to make the, how to totally form this metaphor, but it's like, you look outside and like what has happened to Denver in the last seven years. Um, and look at, you know, my disturbance has been around since what? 2003, four. Uh, technically we picked our first team at the late end of 2005. So we signed our first team to a competition in 06. Okay. So, so that's, you know, 10, 11 years. Um, 
And it's really interesting because like, even though Denver, a city has really, really changed and in really, really heartbreaking ways right now, um, this still, I still feel like the DIY or die aesthetic that, you know, lives at the Merc, that lives at Slamnuba, um, and that is, like, the real soul of Minor Disturbance. Um, and so I think that aura that you're talking about, or, like, the way that we've, like, you know, the way that, like, things were, like, paved for subsequent teams, um, speaks to that, because that's not something that Minor Disturbance will ever lose. We're still an entirely volunteer-run organization. We're still <laughs> um, one of the smallest yet most competition-wise successful teams that have ever attended Brave New Voices. Um, you guys did, what, four final stages in a row? Something like that? I mean, five if you count 2009. Five, five in a row? Yeah. So 2009, 2010, 2011, 12, 13, 14. Last year was... Last year was 16. So we were on final stage seven times. <laughs> <laughs> so how about them that's, apples? That's a lot of visibility. That's a lot of visibility. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember in the last year that I was able to attend Brave New Voices was 2015. Um, and Danez Smith was the... Um, uh, was the slam master and he was just like so that'll be $2,500 for your rental of final stage for the 17th time oh. and I was like yeah <laughs> yep we uh actually we're just gonna own it we're actually <laughs> on this <laughs> we, don't, we don't rent the stage <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah seven final stages um seven fucking consecutive final stages and you just um, like we, we don't really have all the time to like go through everything yeah have, i was just about to say of being like right you've created really <laughs> it's some, if there's a reason that things get muddled right but you've created some some very memorable experiences and some and very very like well-known poets have come out of mm-hmm. minor disturbance uh, most notably amal kassir amal kassir yeah. with the syria poem that just blew mm-hmm. up and uh, and b squared um yeah. was also wrote was yeah. wrote that poem really with that amal poem. um and yeah i think that that was definitely um another very amazing series like just like the i think that that was that was a major turn for minor disturbance um that would have been in 2012 when we were writing poems that were really, really looking to do different things. Um, they were bigger than the moment, bigger than the stage. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and stylistically, they had a much different tenor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, now now it's like like a move to have voices offstage um, in, in slams, or in, you know, the aesthetic of B&B. Um, to have like you know chanting or singing off stage, where you're adding this layer um, to a poem that speaks to like what is unseen and like that you can't like have access to someone visually, um, but still experiencing them and the and the level of the poem um, in a different way. So, yeah, that was yeah, and that's that was just an like incredible poem. The the. the the, the highs have been very, very high, and there haven't been a whole lot of lows in that time. Like Denver has been 
very consistently just bring in the original work, bring in the important work, yeah. bring in, like, the changing work for a very long time in Minor Disturbance. And it's always, and I think that this was something that was like much different for me when I like started like participating in adult teams um, because the the whole ethic of our slam practices is like competition is one thing but like this space is 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 a sacred space it's a space that you um attend on a regular basis to like gather strength and like talk about your your needs um and be able to like support each other um and there's like there's no competition there (laughs) you know it's just like it's just family just it's just getting fed over and over throughout the course of the summer and it's it's very and that's that's like how you know that's where like success in slam in my opinion and my you You know in my in my seven years of (laughs) uh, um as being a a part of minor disturbance um eight years um that's what that's what success is is that you're building relationships and you're creating um poems that that you care about um and experiencing other poems that you will never get to experience again so that's what we call a segue right there Mm -hmm. so i believe your first year competing on an adult team was 2013 2013 that's correct take me through that experience what was that uh, team like for you um on the the team itself it was it was me and franklin so franklin was also a minor servants alumni which was awesome to have him there um you and Piper, Lindsey King Miller, and originally Kevin Cantor. <laughs> and originally, yeah. he was on Kevin the, Cantor they, they was going to be on the team, and yeah. then they just like were not able to make that work. Yeah. Um, and so, and then coached by um, Katie Worsing, um, and yeah, it was just totally different because I think it's also like everybody in the room is is a grown ass adult. And they have their, you know, their artistic formations are pretty um, set. Um, and there's just like an amount of an amount of space that you're willing to do or amount of um, flexibility that you're willing to have as an artist and amount of flexibility that you don't have any longer. Um, and that's that's totally fine. It's like it's, it was just like much different for me. And I think it was a lot different being coached by someone I like viewed as like more of a peer at least like we were both adults um rather than being the coach of an adult team where where youth are a little bit more interested and flexible in discovering the boundlessness of their artistic possibility um and you know you're as a coach you're like along for that ride and like hopefully you know giving appropriate guidance in that um so it was just kind of all of us working to um you know hammer out poems and and create duets uh that that we felt like that kind of like spoke to our interests (laughs) and i think that like that was kind of the era of the merc being the weird kid at the table um like the weirdest kid (laughs) (laughs) Go be great. Go be um, great. 
So no, but like "Go Be Great" is still a much different poem than fucking "Marry, Fuck, or Mary, Kill." Fuck or murder, man. Like, wow. Because that was one of the big. Uh, th- there were. That two, was that was our major group piece. There were two big notable poems from that year. "Marry, Fuck, or Murder" was one of them, and notable maybe in just my experience because it was it was like one of the toughest poems to put together. <laughs> just because, because it's, it's fucking weird. It's weird. It's a weird ass poem. And that summer was really weird. You know, yeah. like we had Kevin on the team for maybe a month, and mm-hmm. then we didn't have Kevin, and mm-hmm. then we had me on the team for maybe three weeks, and then we didn't have me on the team anymore. So. Poems kept getting written and then rewritten and then rewritten and, and words and lines taken out and yeah. different people got to put stuff in and that and that really like led to the Mary Fucker Murder poem. It was one of those like, well, shit, what do we do with this now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I feel like I like brought like I, I feel like I like hand wrote a draft of being like, this is it, this is the ending of this you poem. Had an ending. Absolutely. This is and the end of this poem. Not I'm not fucking around. Yes. <laughs> and the other big noble poem was um, the trio between you, Piper, and Lindsay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, about like, um, like women and violence and like yeah. what what women are taught. That was the poem. Yeah. Um, the things women must know. I think. Yeah. Is the name of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember the the process of of memorizing that poem too. And again, it was kind of another experience to have of you're not only trying to like put the poem in your body but like make space for like the poem to allow itself into other people's body um so and i've i think in subsequent poems that i wrote after that or what was that the year i wrote sewing circle yes that was the debut of sewing circle yeah so i i was also working with this poem that was fighting me um and it was kind of like the first year that I understood like how to negotiate that sometimes poems, <laughs> um, you know, don't come from you. They come through you and they have their own personality. And sometimes like if you're not ready to like say all the things that this poem needs you to say, it like the poem itself will like sense that and rebel against you and you won't be able to get the words out like like that's that's super real can you imagine the sound of a billion pairs of hands sewing our needles as ancient and as common as vertebra our stories our decaying family heirlooms hung in dusty hallways to be a woman is to be a wedding quilt on a child's bed I am the warmth you sleep beneath without ever having to understand the labor inherent in its creation. And so I think that a lot of that was happening with things women must know. And I was still coaching Minor Disturbance. We were in Chicago that year. um, And we had just won the year before with with like Amal and and company. and so then, yeah, the next year, <laughs> I, we won again, to be honest. Because um, that's what you knew. And <laughs> BNV was one week, and the week exactly following was, was NPS. So I flew from Chicago to Boston. So I was already just like a zombie and a half. <laughs> like because BNV is twenty four seven, like it it doesn't stop because you're have the stress of the competition, have the stress of you know making sure that your poets are taken care of, that their emotional needs are like being tended, that their fucking physical needs are being tended because they just don't fucking drink water, um, 
<laughs> and and all of that shit happening. Um, Rebecca was also on Nuba, right? Yes. Yeah. Year. Rebecca hadn't been coaching Minor Disturbance up until that point. Um, so we met back in uh, back in Boston. And yeah, <laughs> you know, it was it was a fuck ton to take take on at that moment. Um, all of the untidiness of personal relationships and figuring out adulting as well as being that you know that was my first nps um and it was really fucked up because there was a like i'm walking in you know i don't want to say innocent but (laughs) just being like there is a fuck ton of of trauma and violence and things that go down at nps that i didn't know about um and that you know poets who can't you know have a reputation in the community who can't be trusted and i had no idea well, um, that's really when that that whole conversation came to a head yeah right there like it, it hadn't been like that in years past and mm-hmm. that right it really hasn't been like that since that one year like mm-hmm. that one year things just really boiled over for sure <laughs> and it was just you know i think things have been building at nps um, or in, in the national adult scene mm-hmm. that I just like was, was not tapped into because I was like, you know, the adult poets that I know are the fucking shit, you know, <laughs> they're, they're my mentors and heroes and colleagues at this point. Um, like you and Susie, Jen, Ken. Yeah. There's a team that, uh, was made by, uh, a very, very fuck, fucked up problematic, problematic person. fucked up problematic person yes, um who you know knew the rules of <laughs> of PSI and was able to finagle themselves back on, into yep. nats um and, and this was it. this was like fucking huge and really really intense and traumatizing for a lot of the yep. like women um and and other folks at at that competition, I was just like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on. Well, as I understand, this poet really tried to hide themselves in group pieces and never took an individual space on the stage because they knew it would. They happen. knew they would get booed off yes, the stage. Yes, which is what happened anyway. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was really, really intense because then it gets revealed that all of the folks that he has on his team also don't know this person's reputation or the shit that's going down. And so they, they thought that they were just being booed on final stage, um, for no reason Mm. and felt like really shitty and unwelcome. Um, and it's, you know, it's really intense. I mean, again, and I think that that again, kind of like reignited this conversation in Nats to be like, you need to know that this is a two fucking way street. And people are not going to put up with misogynistic, transphobic, racist fucking poems anymore. You will get booed. Um, and I think it kind of put the put the that expectation, that aesthetic, back into Nats. To be like, and as, as I understand, because I wasn't there, but I also understand that was really the year that NPS made it a point to differentiate between safe space and brave space. Right. Like. They, they can't assure a safe space that's just impossible mm-hmm. but they can assure that if people are are brave enough to get on that stage that it will be a two-way conversation mm-hmm. you know like like 
the, the audience is just as much a part of the show as the poets are. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be a dumpster fire of a human, then yeah. you're going to hear about it from, from the audience, and they're going to let you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that was 2013. Uh, you guys, I believe, made semis that year. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I don't remember. Oh. At that point, I was like, I don't... <laughs> I think it was just like a spinal cord... <laughs> attached to eyeballs <laughs> and like i had no other like sense of being i just i like i was not a person anymore um so it was 2013 i believe the next year you were on nuba i was on 2014. that's right i was on nuba in 2014 um me jovan mays theo wilson johnny osai and hoser and hoser that's right um so again I go from the weird kids table to the dude's table <laughs> for lack Talk of for lack experience. of any better like yeah word um and it was like again a totally different experience um I know that I'd never second adult team I'd ever been on and the first team ever that was fucking obsessed with win- winning Nuba has cultivated a, a culture of Doing well in the competition. Yes. yes. Um, that, that is a, a it's, it's, it's a competition-forward aesthetic. Yes. Let's say yes. <laughs> Or fucking obsessed with winning. Yeah. Um, Whereas, <laughs> for like shorthand. Said, the, the Merc is just the weird kids at the table. Yeah, you know, we're like making little volcanoes out of our mashed potatoes, all that shit. All that. Whereas, <laughs> Nuba... Whereas Nuba is the star of the football team. There we go. I will say that. Um, and so... It was... It was a much, much different experience. Um... For one thing, I am, you know, a queer, gender nonconforming person, and I um, am not really around that many straight um, cis men ever. (laughs) And it was like the first time that I had to like reckon with just being like, okay, so this exists. And it's like, how do I navigate like um, certain codifications of like misogyny that happen within like this like camaraderie of like okay so like you're a lesbian so you know you check out women the same way I do and all this stuff and it was just like stuff that I didn't know have like the vocabulary to navigate at that point and that that is a tricky needle to thread you know Mm -hmm. how do you how do you maintain the camaraderie of the team but mm-hmm. at the same time? Yeah, and I like, really, really wanted call to call people on things that are not okay. Yeah, like, that's a tough balancing act. Yeah, it's it's shit that I still am. That's that's definitely my own shit, and I own that, and I'm still I'm working on that <laughs> too. And it's you know it's not stuff that I was really able to call, or you know, or, or like bring up in I felt like a constructive way, except for, um, I was feeling really, really, you know, upset that we are all math like cis men and like one very masculine of center queer person um and so it's like what does it say about nuba's aesthetic that this is what was rewarded to the point of making this team in the first place um i mean going back to the poems i think you used to get on that team they were there was some more feminine of centered poems yes yes there were feminist poems for sure yeah um and so i think that that was it was something that was just like on my mind the entire time um and i brought up of being like i want us all to write a poem like not like apologizing to women but like owning like what is our masculine privilege what is our like masculinity in this space 
and and like reckoning with this um and the only way i want us all to write it is if we don't perform it for competition and this just like this was a (laughs) non-starter because it like it just didn't make sense um to to most of the people on the team of like why would you write a poem that you weren't going to compete with Um, this never got written written. we did a few exercises on it um and and you know i just kind of you know let it be what it was so then my other rebellion uh with hoser was writing becky Becky. (laughs) when i was in third grade i asked my father to teach me how to box my bike was not stolen nor did i dream of winning the golden gloves I simply wanted to defend myself from a childhood bully. Her name was Becky. <laughs> Which was this poem about, uh, you know, like, like feminine strength. Um, and... From two perspectives. Right. The hoser starts it off by saying he used to get beat up on the playground. By a girl named by Becky. By a girl named Becky. And then you kind of... Come in as Becky. Yes, I, Becky. yes, I right? am Becky. Yeah. Um, and she'll, you know break your nose and steal your lunch money yes yes this this particular becky will and like yeah as i'm um again like you know have have space away from from that too it was still like this masculine femininity or rather or rather like feminine strength only comes from like physical force or um being able to fight back in in a way that's like legible to masculinity in a way that uh, masculinity can understand mm-hmm. right? yeah so um so you know it, it's still it, like it's definitely like the poem that we could have written at that moment and i you know i i love and appreciate that poem and also um that was that wasn't the summer that like zimmerman got off yes it was that was 14 yes, yeah. yeah so um Jovan and Theo Theo were really, really, like, obviously and rightfully, like, fucked up about it. Um, And they wrote, still to this day, like, one of my favorite poems um, about, like, what does it mean to, to be told over and over again that you were, like, not a person if you're black. And, and, like... And, and what does it mean when black people start fighting back? Um, and it was, you know, amazing. It was, it's, it's an incredible poem. So some experiences and poems from that year of note. Um, you definitely talked about Becky. That was that was a very you know, prominent out front poem. Because mm-hmm. you guys say that for, like, important parts. You, you did that in your seminars, Bow. Yeah. Um, Burning Houses, another, like, prominent, very out front poem. Mm-hmm. Um, the Holograms poem. Yeah. Was another notable one from yeah. that year. Um, Holograms was really interesting. Talk to me about Holograms. Um, so I think Jovan got inspired to do this poem when he saw that there was a hologram of Michael Jackson at Coachella or something. There was video of this. Or was it... I think it might have been Tupac. At- or, they had both at some at one point. Yeah. Like one came first and the other yeah. Next, yeah. Yeah. And um again, like thinking about all of these things about like even in death, like black artists are still like commodified. Mm-hmm. Um and they're um 
their aesthetics, their voices are still owned by someone who is not them. So we kind of like decided to like blow that up and like what if what if in the end like we're all <laughs> like 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 abstract concepts to be commodified and um and replicated for into perpetuity um at least i think that's what it was about <laughs> <laughs> the other big um notable experience that that i can attest to from being an audience member for you guys was your semifinals bout because that was just a ridiculous bout i right think there. so too i think um, I'd put it up there with that BNV 09 bout yeah. where like it was just heavy hitter after I, heavy hitter. I couldn't that. understand how we won. <laughs> um, you know I, how was, you won? I was shocked. You know how you won? <laughs> I told Theo the same thing because he said the exact same thing. He's like, I don't even know how we won that bout. I'll tell you exactly where you won that bout. Just like before with Eli, when he gave you that look like, what? Like that's when you won that bout? Or when you had the audience in? It was when Hoser said, I, I bet you hologram two pockets on Republic. That one line just destroyed right. the room. That's like, right. Destroyed that room. And from there, it was just game over. Mm-hmm. Game over. Yeah. It's a, and it, it's, it's wild. Like, Poetry Slam is such a bizarre-ass game. <laughs> um, that, again, yeah, like, one line that resonates, like, just right, that people are ready to hear in that moment, um, will change your game. Like for better or for worse, um, and it's it's just it's it's super wild. Because you repeated that poem on final stage and did not resonate. It the didn't. Same it way. didn't work the same. No, because the room was different. Yeah, yeah, um, and also you know, a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> because final stage is again like an entirely different animal. Because, um, you know, you work so hard to get there. Um, and then it's just a normal ass poetry slam <laughs> where you're just going to do your normal ass poems, except for like more people. Um, but again, it's just like you big. So if you don't have that, like in your head going in, you will get like sucked up, sucked into like all of these like different, you know, shitty things that are going to happen. Like the mics are going to pop and, you know, things are going to be vibrating the wrong way and you can't hear your shit on the monitor and, your, you know, your teammates are, like, angry because they're not winning. <laughs> and, like, you don't know how to get that fucking 30 right, right now because you're too in your head trying to just get the fuck through this poem. Um, whereas, you know, at the end of the day, it's a normal fucking poetry slam. Yeah. It's just, it's a regular ass, regular ass game. In a bigger room. In a bigger room, bigger. so... So, now so, we are in 2017, Yes, and you are Dun-dun. the host chair mm-hmm. for the National Poetry Slam. Yes, Talk I am. Talk to me about that competition. That, that, that process, that what happened? Um, so, 2015, um, I think, I, uh, Susie and I were, and Rebecca were coaching Minor Disturbance, Obvi, and... Um, Susie was like on her way out or something and I was like hey what's going on with like like Nats like is Denver gonna get a Nats <laughs> um, and it's like one of those things where you just like say the right thing to the right person at the right moment and Susie was like well 
do you want to be the host city chair? And I was like, yeah, sure. What's that? <laughs> and she was like, we'll be in touch. <laughs> And then, you and then I was. <laughs> um, so what is that? So, um, host city chair uh, is basically the person responsible for managing the host city team, which controls our volunteers, um, uh, marketing for the event, uh, logistics like sound and seating, uh, securing venues, securing a host hotel, um, securing sponsorship making a guidebook basically absolutely everything um that's not the slam which is everything <laughs> at nps right? uh yeah anything that is not um specifically having to do with scores and time which is like actually 98 percent of the fucking festival is responsibility of the host city um so I did not know this. <laughs> um, and it's kind of the same thing that I that I keep learning over and over again is that like after seeing how um, like being on minor disturbance and then coaching and being like, okay, so this is the way that I want to coach. Um, these are the things that I learned as a youth poet. This is how the sausage that is minor disturbance gets made. And then being like, okay, so I went to a national festival um and like you know had no idea how shit gets made or how things you know show up at different places or like how i ended up at the venues that i ended up at and there were people at the door ready to do shit um and so now you know it's uh it's like peeling back that whole curtain to make it you know a really really seamless experience for the poets so that they can do their poems and like right. not have to like worry about an audience being there not have to worry about waiting around for judges to arrive. Um, not worry about, you know, being misgendered by the hosts, <laughs> things like that. Accessibility stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully God willing. Um, yeah. and so luckily, um, the executive director of PSI lives four blocks away from me. Right yeah. <laughs> like literally I can, I can see Susie from my house. Um, (laughs) So um, having Susie uh, on hand um, and ready to like answer all the questions. And like Susie again is like one of the people that sees all of the things and is an incredible organizer. Shout out to my Capricorns. Um, She is, has like, you know, really, really made it, already an incredible like set us up for like really really amazing success so at this point we have secured venues we are creating our um finishing our guidebooks finishing a media or a digital platform for the guidebook which will be a lot better than (laughs) a paper guidebook the idea the idea is to make this the most like monetarily successful NPS ever for the host city. Um, because we have, again, like amazing fucking professionals in, in Denver, like Melissa Newman Evans and D Brooks, um, who just like understand marketing <laughs> and understand like this, this is shit that you can, you can really sell and like get people interested in because it's a really important cultural event. 
Well, I yeah, think D works in marketing. Yeah. As a job. And yeah. Melissa has the advantage of being in the same position from Boston because mm-hmm. she did from two years. Yeah. From yeah. Two thousand eleven and thirteen. Thirteen. I know it was one of them. Yeah. So. Um. So we're we're like set up for a whole lot of success <laughs> when it comes to um, NPS this year. Um, for me, it's just like being able to like manage the managers, <laughs> which is not like a skill that I like pretend to have at this moment. Um, and it's also like they don't need a lot of management. They do need a lot. I think it's like they need like people to like sign off and like assure them that like whatever they're doing is going to be the perfect thing that they're doing. So a lot of direction. So I do a lot of cheerleading. Not a lot of motivation. You got a lot of like. Yeah, I do a lot of um, a lot of affirmation. (laughs) I'm just being like, this looks fucking great. You should do more of that. Um, This is amazing. I can't believe you got that sponsorship. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So what should the people listening to this podcast expect from a Denver National Poetry Slam? Things that, one, they, they are used to and accustomed to, and two, things that maybe would surprise them or would be different from other National Poetry Slams. Um, so we have been extremely intentional with our events committee to make sure that like all of the um, identity open mics don't overlap so that we can, you know, obviously, like, you, there's, you know, queer and trans, like, people of color, and they, like, don't want to have to choose which affinity mic to attend, things like that. Um, so we've been really intentional about that. We're also really working hard to um, assure that the poetry organizations that already exist in Denver are well-represented, that are not just slam-related. Um, and because Denver is a huge, huge poetry city. Um, what are, I mean, other things that I think people expect from an NPS are butts in the seats, people ready to hear poetry, people who know what poetry is. Um, and that is something that I feel really confident <laughs> in this point <laughs> of delivering to like poets who attend, that you're going to have audiences that are down for you. Um, and, and like really, really interested in your work. Um, I think some like, you know, special things that you're not, that you're only going to be able to like experience in Denver is like the Mercury Cafe, (laughs) like as a venue, I think that it is like totally specific. It's like, it is to me, like one of the last beating hearts of Denver. Um, call back to the beginning of the. Yeah, exactly. Like Denver, Denver is really in a position of, um, of, of really intense gentrification, like right outside our, our door. Like you walk outside of the Mercury Cafe and it's gentrification on all sides. What used to be a hostel is now going to be like a coffee bar or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or like the Crossroads Theater is going to be a retail space. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really, really intense. Um, uh, so I think other things that, like, not unexpected, but just, like, really, really good for poets is that, like, we're really trying to do a um, poets marketplace where any team that's not on final stage can have a place to sell their merch. 
to trade their merch, to do whatever. And we all know that no matter where you end up in the competition, there's poems that you wanted to run. There's poems that you needed to say that you didn't get to say. Um, And so there'll also be like a stage available for each team to get to do like the poem that they really, really wish that they had got to do. Um, That's the idea. Um, In lieu of a like uh, slam family picnic or or anything else like that, we're going to have this marketplace and like a place to um, like hear each other's work and hopefully, you know, people can actually like sell their stuff. Um, because that's another thing that's, that's rough is that you spend so much money and time, um, getting here here over the course of a summer and then you get your, you know, 12 minutes on stage, (laughs) uh, 24 minutes on stage. If you're lucky. Um, and then you're, you're donezo. So I think that's something that like BNV really inspired in me is actually where is NPS outside of its like competition elements like does it care about holding space for poets outside of affinity open mics for you know group pieces and entire teams to like just like love on each other um that's something that i'm really really interested in seeing happen this year um the other the other thing is like we are fucking stacked for workshops um like we have you know trauma informed art praxis we have um uh, we're actually going to be doing a talk back um where nps participants can speak to the organizers of the festival psi and the host city chairs to talk about what they need from the festival that that's not being incorporated we're also going to have 24 hour sober space at the festival um in the hotel which is something that we were hearing from the accessibility committee as well as a lot of poets um, who could really, really use um, space that's not centered around like alcohol. So that's gonna be really, really amazing as well. Um, Yeah, basically, (laughs) you name it, we got it. We got a lot of beautiful shit happening um, for these these next few. the, for, the, for the course of the festival. And just like speaking for, you know, shout out to Denver Arts and Venues. <laughs> the major hub of the festival is going to be the McNichols building. We basically have everything going on there all the time. Yeah. For the, they, they, they made the mistake of giving us the, um, the entire building for a week and we are going to use it. Yeah. So we're running... Um, workshops there in the daytime, prelims on both floors uh, in the evening, semis on both floors, and then group piece finals and the after party. So it is going to be Denver NPS presented by Denver Arts and Venues at the McNichols building. But it's again, it's just, it's really, really helpful because something else we were really, really intentional about is keeping shit within walking distance keeping shit on a light rail at the most, like the farthest venue from the host hotel is like 1.4 miles, 1.3 miles. Um, and, and it's on, and it's on track, a light right? rail, which is less than a block from the light rail stop. Um, and the light rail is three blocks from the host hotel. So we were really, really aware of like, 
those accessibility issues and that, you know, outside of, you know, like ordering an Uber every single day, there are like sometimes venues are just like inaccessible. That was that was like honestly one of the major headaches at um my first NPS was getting around Cambridge. Um, yeah, I understand it was really spread out. Yeah. A lot of venues were not close. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it is what it is. And I under, like, you know, now that I'm on the host city committee, I can understand how, like, that shit happens. So, you know, we're lucky enough in Denver to have a, a hotel that's down for us right in the middle of everything. Okay. Final question. Mm-hmm. Same final question I ask everybody. You're walking along the beach. See a magic lamp on the beach. Okay. You rub it three times, and a magic genie pops out. The magic genie says you have one wish for Denver poetry. What is your one wish for Denver poetry? For for Denver specifically, mm-hmm. um, to know that we really like Denver has some some saving to do, <laughs> like. Denver, as we understand and love it, is is in serious trouble, um, and it's it's agonizing to watch over and over, um, and that like we as poets have to like know that our community like doesn't exist without these cultural spaces, um, and be ready to defend them when. When how, those issues come up. How can we, though? I mean, if we're talking about the crossroads, right? It was mm-hmm. home to Slamnuba for a decade. Mm-hmm. But then it changes a bunch of hands. Nobody can make any money off of it. It goes from one nonprofit to a church to another group. And mm-hmm. How could poets have stepped in? How could any poet have saved that space? Um, I think it's... And this is, like, really interesting, too, because poets were there. Like, they were, like raising the money and like making the phone calls and like going to the community meetings and hustling as much as they possibly could have. Um, and so it's like, you know, this feeling of like, I keep doing like (laughs) the great nothing. It's just like the great nothing in my brain from never ending story. And it's just like, they look like such good, strong hands. (laughs) Like that is how, that's how I think we feel as poets that like things are getting like sucked out of our hands or that's how we feel as, you know, as a Denver community. Um, And so knowing (laughs) that um, like poetry space doesn't exist without, without (laughs) community, without people. um, And like defending those spaces looks a lot of ways. And sometimes it looks like, you know, we're not, we're not always going to win, but we're also building the skills that we need to win the next time or to do better the next time um to um we're making like the connections to you know city auditors and all of this shit to be like we don't you know we don't accept (laughs) that this is what you're trying to do um i mean if you look at fucking seattle um they got a poet running for mayor a slam poet. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, they have a slam poet running for mayor. And she's actually, like... Nikita Oliver. Um, she 
is, you know, running on a platform that is so informed by social justice and so like already has like this huge breadth of community support from like not just poetry community but also you know many many other communities um so i mean like that's that's another idea being like who wants to run for mayor fam Um, because this is getting this is this is getting too real (laughs) um who would you who would you nominate in the slime community for mayor of denver i was just thinking that (laughs) (laughs) you should run for mayor (laughs) because we need it (laughs) um i think Susie should just be president well of the world yeah yeah um that would be the next right yeah well is there anything else you want to plug or promote before i turn the recorder off um check out minordisturbance.org no bedtime.org. Um, if you're a teacher or um, like youth serving organization, community member interested in having um, like poetry workshops in your space, uh, shout out to the Chinook Fund. They just gave us a grant. Minor Service just got a substantial grant to keep sustaining us for the next few years, um, which is amazing. Um, yeah, shout out to Susie Q. Smith, Piper Mullins. Um, they are they are incredible community members and organizers, and really like stellar examples of how to community, <laughs> um, you know, in a in a sustainable fashion that actually like gets everybody's needs met in some way or another. And volunteer for the National Poetry Slam. And volunteer for the National Poetry Slam. It's going to be amazing. You don't want to miss it. You want free shit. You want free tickets. You want a free t-shirt. You want, like, to, like, meet some cute poets. Um, they're, they're all over. They're just, like, you know how, like, in New York, there's just, like, roving models, like, in the wild? Obviously. Yeah, that's how it is at National Poetry Slam. It's just like it's a fashion show. Roving poets. Really, models. really beautiful poets, all as far as the eye can see. So I encourage everyone to at least attend. Right. <laughs> you heard here. That's a direct order from your host city chair, right there. <laughs> all right. right. Thank you again so much, Mary McDonough. Thanks, Eddie. I love you. Love you too. Another fantastic interview here at the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. A huge thank you to Mary McDonough for allowing me the time to come in and just talk about some of the good old days and really, really bringing up some of those really fond memories of of the days of yore. So thank you so much again to Mary McDonough for being our interview for this week. Now we're going to talk about what happened at the actual Poetry Slam. Denver. 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 Queen City of the Plains. Lift high our spirits. Sing well our praise. For in you we live and are loved. This last Sunday was your annual Slaughterhouse Slam, where we invite all comers to compete against each other Ten dollars a poet, winner takes all. And we had fourteen competitors in this slaughterhouse slam. So the total prize for the the winnings of that was hundred and forty dollars. So let's get into what happened and who took home the money. Your 
Open mic was a bit shorter this week because we had such a long slam to get through. Only four spots on the open mic, and those were filled by Angela Nicole, Dickie, Jill Carno, and Anissa. And since it was such a short open mic, I've only really got one clip to play for you. It's from Jill Carno. This is from a newer piece that I've heard a couple of times, but I think this is my first chance to really get it on the podcast here. So I want to talk about this new piece from Jill Carno. I am fallible. I call myself a bitch sometimes, and maybe I deserve every scar embedded in this body. But it's the people who love me through breaking that I trust the most. Now this poem starts off with Jill talking about love and talking about her perceptions on love, about how when she says it, she never expects to hear it back, that her father used to say that people are just going to do what they want, whatever, to never trust people, and then she says, you know what, I want people to do what they want, and how she's not exempt from her father's advice, how she calls herself a bitch sometimes, but she still trusts those who love her through all the breaking. So I, I really enjoy this piece. I really like the complexity, I like the directions, the twists and turns it takes, and it's a very short piece. It's maybe two minutes long, which is kind of Jill's forte. She packs a whole lot into a tight amount of space. So I did want to get this poem on the podcast and say, uh, I really appreciate all the writing that you're doing out there, Jill. Keep it coming, and I'll keep singing your praises here on the podcast. And now let's talk about this slam. Like I said, we had 14 competitors, not including your sacrificial poet, who was amazing as well. So the Slaughterhouse Slam is an annual event that is hosted by the Mercury Cafe team where they invite anyone else, poets of all corners, to come in, throw $10 into a pot, and the winner takes all the money at the end. Past notable winners of the Slaughterhouse Slam have been Theo Wilson, Lucy Fury, have been Kevin Cantor, have been Peter Aquino. So some pretty heavy hitters around the scene vying for this and this year's was no different we had in the first round piper mullins followed by monica santiago then ian d hakeem furious wheeler light johnny osai emily camp gage kyle sutherland stylo marks erica skeels zexel nightshade amanda and Toluwa. So that is quite a stacked list of names for anyone in the know here. And anyone who's not in the know, who's heard a couple of these podcasts, I'm sure you recognize more than a few names on that first round list. So let's get right to the clips here. I actually want to start off with your sacrifice, with uh, Connor Marvin was your sacrificial poet, really setting the tone for all the other poets to follow with... His, this is Slam and We Do. We bloody experimental circuits. We crash test dummies of redemption. We survival poets. It matters what we do here. Connor Marvin with a perfect poem to set the tone for what was about to happen. This poem is, is one of the best written rallying cries for Slam that I have ever heard in my life. The, the stuff that he addresses here, this idea that, like, what if the only reason that you survived all that you went through was to share your stories on this stage so other people might not have to go through the pain that you went through is just amazing. And the way that Connor frames this in different ways and, and the way that he can address this one topic and, and keep bringing back this idea that it matters what we do here. It matters what happens on that stage because poetry can literally save lives. So I can think of no better way to have kicked off the night than with Connor Marvin 
and this is Slam and We Do. The next clip I'm going to play for you is from Piper Mullins, who I think just kind of got swallowed up by the draw. 14 Poets is a tough draw to come back from. It's, it's really tough going early, but Piper went out there swinging with the cock poem. We don't write these poems for your fucking entertainment just like poems about your dick. Don't really entertain us. But for the record, my cock, it's still bigger than yours. And this, I decided to choose this clip of the poem because I think it's, it's kind of the thesis of the poem. That uh, Piper doesn't write those poems for your entertainment. That just like those poems about your cock, your dick, don't entertain nearly the number of people that you think they do. So I know I've had that poem on the podcast before, but I wanted to show this other side to it. Since I don't play full clips, I just have to give you little samples, little tastes. This is really the the big hammer home to this particular poem. Uh, Piper sets this up by doing a bunch of jokes, you know, a bunch of funny, funny, funny setup, and then the hammer falls down right about this point. We don't write these poems for your fucking entertainment, just like poems about your cock don't entertain us. So, like I said, I think Piper just got swallowed up by the draw, by the early draw. Uh, the next clip I'm going to play for you is from Hakeem Furious. This is his gas stations poem that I've been a fan of ever since the first time I've heard it. My favorite part is the cigarettes, the jumpstart to a person's day. Marvel Monday, new pack of Newports by noon. Sometimes selling camels by the cart in hundreds on your lunch break. It's the American spirit. And leave it to Hakeem to take something as mundane as working at a gas station. I can say that because I did that. I worked at a gas station for, I want to say, half a year, and it gets pretty boring, especially when you're the night shift, and you're the only person, and you see, like, maybe 20 people the entire time. Yeah, it can get mundane, but leave it to Hakeem to take something like that, an experience as kind of monotonous and mundane as that, and make it compelling and interesting the way he does. Just like that cigarette breakdown. You know, the, the wordplay involved in just that stretch alone really does give you a glimpse at how really good at writing and, and performing and framing that Hakeem is. So, wanted to play that for you. Hakeem actually did make it into the second round based off the strength of that poem. The next clip I will play for you is from Johnny Osai. Specifically, this clip I wanted to play because I haven't had a chance to put it on the podcast. It's been a while since Johnny has done this uh, poem. This is his to all of the to all of the good cops. Wishing you could walk the streets without fearing violence might leave you black and blue. Black and blue. I bet blue feels a bit like black to you, but it's not. You see, your color is a dress. You can shimmy out whenever you wish. And just like vintage Johnny to really slowly set up what he is trying to establish and then just absolutely just drop it on your head with one line with with one connection that he's really trying to make this poem starts off addressing to the good cops uh, i'll bet you don't like it when people speak ill of you i bet you don't like it when people just say that you're all bad cops because you're one of the good ones but then the slow turn at this point when he's like, I bet blue feels a lot like black to you. Oh my god, so delicious. It's like eating a, a decadent meal when, when I hear this particular part of the poem. And of course then he just goes on a tear. You know, I want your house spotless. I want your department spotless. 
a great, great poem, and I'm glad I could finally at least discuss this piece on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. The next clip I'll play for you is from Kyle Sutherland, and the reason I'm playing this clip is, well, twofold. Kyle went up and did this completely off the dome. This was a freestyle. This is not written. It's, it's not something he had planned. He just went up there and he just wanted to have an open mic and talk about things that were important to him. The second reason I wanted to discuss this clip and bring it up is because Kyle does something not a lot of people do. At least not a lot of people do successfully. Not a lot of people know how to do it in a way that's going to garner conversation and not just completely shut down the the audience what what they're trying to accomplish that we might cry soul together that we might breathe together solidarity is breathing with you know some of us muslims are feminists you know some muslims are gay you know we are so tired of being stereotyped kyle challenges the audience in this poem he starts off by asking literally asking if anyone knows how many civilians that america has killed in syria and then when nobody answers, he say he, he switches to, oh, we don't know that? How many civilians has America killed in Iraq? And people don't know that. And he says, let's go back in time. How many civilians did America kill in Vietnam? And, of course, no one knows the answer to this. And so he uses that as a way to set up what he, what he really wants to talk about, and that is being a Muslim in the world stage, uh, being a member of this community that's constantly persecuted. Not only is he a Muslim, but he's an American. And it's sometimes it's very, very hard to reconcile what those two things are. So I really wanted to play this and just celebrate. Thank you, Kyle, for doing this in a way that's, that's challenging, but that doesn't shut down the conversation immediately after it begins. Of course, at the end of the poem, he tells the audience how many civilians a conservative estimate is in each one of those scenarios in Syria, Iraq, and in Vietnam. And so he doesn't just leave the audience hanging on there. And he, he proves that he isn't going to ask the audience of something that he himself is not able or willing to do. So hat off to Kyle Sutherland. I really thought this was great. The scores for a poem like this... Play it out kind of like what you'd expect, and he did not make the second round, which is why I specifically wanted to bring this poem up. The last poem I'm going to play for you in the first round is this clip from Tolua, who had the good fortune of going last in the first round. Not only that, you give Tolua the last spot in a slam, and the fact that she's a genius when it comes to slamming and writing poems, then you're gonna get magic. And I don't understand what folded hands are supposed to do against all this world and all these men and all this black hole of me. Tolawa just absolutely seizing the moment, taking advantage and knocking it out of the park. Uh, this poem begins off with her mom asking her, you know, how she got so vulgar, and why is she so angry all the time, and so the, the rest of the poem is an address of that question. It uh, doesn't know what to do with all this black hole of me, uh, what it means to be black and female in a body that's constantly folding in on itself. Such a fantastic, a great poem, and of course, it was enough to get Tolua into the second round. Not just that, but she had the high score. In the second round, we had Ian D, Hakeem Furious, Johnny Osai, and Tolua, like I mentioned before. Ian D read a brand new poem that I heard once before in Colorado Springs last week, in Here Here, that I didn't have my recording device with, so I couldn't play a clip. But fortunately, I did have a clip for it this time. So here is Ian 
addressing himself during a depressive episode. You live here, in the greatest country in the world! There ain't no needles chasing your veins, boy! Ain't no demons so big they ride you into the grave, kid! What do you got to be sad about? You've had everything handed to you! Living in this skin, you ain't never had it hard! Go fuck yourself! Now, I think it's important to set up the fact that he's addressing himself before I played this clip so you would understand the proper context and what he's trying to accomplish, what he's actually trying to say, and how that frames the message being said. That out of the way, I thought this this is a great poem. This is another one of those classic Ian Dougherty poems that is just, it is so finely crafted, not a wasted word in this entire thing, and the emotion attached to it is just outstanding. It's it's exactly what it needs to be. So Ian Dougherty just absolutely killing it in the second round. Unfortunately, he did not score well enough to make it into the final round. The other clip I'm going to play for you in the second round was Tolua. This was another brand new piece. So a lot of brand new work. This is Tolua's address to toxic masculinity. How does it feel to be the overseer of your own house? Does it make you feel closer to God? Is that the gospel they sold you? Does it make you feel special to have dominion over the earth, brother? They tied us down and took our honor too. Now, I believe it was Wheeler Light when I interviewed him who said that academia could learn feelings from Islam. And I think this clip is an exact example of what Wheeler was talking about. There is so much passion, so much fire, not to mention the brilliant writing, not to mention the amazing poet that is Tolua. When she gets that fire, when she gets that spark, that, that energy, then it's a deadly combination for anyone in a slam. So this was fantastic, and it got Tolua the high score in the second round as well. So in the final round, we had Johnny Osai versus Tolua. Johnny did his Scattered Seeds poem, which is a half autobiographical recounting of his life before cleaning himself up, which he's very open about, and half condemnation on things like AA and things like organized religion. So here's a clip from Johnny Osai's final round poem. I went back to shuffling, played like it never happened until they read me the steps of recovery. Step 11, through prayer and meditation, I will improve my constant contact with God. Well, now what the fuck? Every time I talk about things you don't see, you call me crazy. Now, now how the fuck am I supposed to have a spiritual awakening without any spirits, huh? And it was at that point where Johnny absolutely had the crowd right where he wanted them. Uh, they, they were completely on his side. He got all kinds of cheers, and he used that momentum all the way through the end of the poem. Uh, he, he's not here for this little thimble full of God is one of the final lines. Unfortunately, Johnny went a little over time and got a time penalty, which would prove to be crucial to the outcome of the night. Before I talk about that, here is your final clip. This is from Tolua in her last round piece. This is how a goddess bleeds, demi-divine, blood-soaked, but always spine straight. I sing the lowest notes of the blues just to feel my vocal cords unsettled. And this is, I believe, another brand new poem from Tolua. Uh, this one is a little more rough around the edges than her previous one in the second round, but still absolutely great. This is how a goddess bleeds. Are you kidding me? Uh, there was a whole lot of connected imagery. Maybe didn't hit as hard as some of the other poems that Tolu did because the thematic tie isn't quite as strong as it could be. 
And actually, Johnny Osai's time penalty did come into play at the end of the night because had he not gotten that, he would have won the Slaughterhouse Slam and the $140 that went along with it. Johnny Osai, actually, another former winner of the Slaughterhouse Slam. But since he got that time penalty, Tolua ended up taking the night home for $140 and the glory of calling themselves the Slaughterhouse Slam champion for another year, Tolua. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Try to believe. Grab a napkin, homie. You just got served. The cell is, for lack of a better word, perfect. Now we got some quick hits. There was a Slam Nuba this week, but I didn't get any audio from it because it was in a brand new venue. I, I wasn't sure I was going to even have the chance to hook up any audio, and I, I don't want to go into someone else's house and just start assuming that I'm welcome there and that I can do all the things that I normally do. We can recap and talk about what happened there. Uh, Slam Nuba is trying out going to El Centro Su Teatro, and hopefully, we're all crossing our fingers, hopefully that's going to be a permanent home for them. But based off of this last uh, slam at, at Slam Nuba, nothing's in stone. Nothing is for certain. Uh, it was a great night. Hoser hosted the whole thing. And you had Tolua and Piper Mullins going head-to-head in the final round. Tolua also won that slam. So it was a big weekend for Tolu. Just taking all the lunches. But yeah, Tolua just wrecking shop everywhere she went. And the... The whole of Denver poetry is taking notice. This is a great, great gearing up for the National Poetry Slam that is about to happen here in about a month's time. Oh, yeah, a little over a month here in Denver. So with that being said, I think there's no more perfect time to interview Tolua for this podcast than for next week. So you got to definitely tune in next week. See what all the fuss is about. Get to know the people behind the poems, the stories behind the events. And Tolua is going to be uh, amazing. You definitely want to check it out. Uh, also, we are still looking for volunteers for the National Poetry Slam. If you would like to volunteer, check out npsdenver.com. Click on the Get Involved button. We are still in need of a lot of volunteers to come and help us out. And if you want to go to all the preliminaries and the semis bouts for free, and why would you not, then all you got to do is volunteer. And you got that pass. So I would like to say thank you again to Polly Lippman. I don't understand a fucking word they're saying, but I'm going to politely golf clap at the end. To Jess Niebuhr. The giant stuffed dildo snake. Megan Fally. <laughs> I'm the host. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Connor Marvin. Blackening scab artfully hiding in your raisin bran. Catherine Grace. Yeah, get stoked. And the audience at the Mercury Cafe. Human equivalent of cargo pants that zip away into shorts. That'll do it for us this week on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Until next week, remember that the points are not the point. And that the poetry is not even the point. That the point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week, everyone. (laughs) 